Welcome to the Making Sense of Life podcast. My name is Garth Oliver, and I'm your host as we continue our journey through the pages of Scripture, tracking the story that unfolds there. In today's episode, we're going to work through chapters 56 through 59 of Isaiah, where Yahweh, through the prophet, exhorts his people to live in anticipation of the Redeemer that is coming to establish justice and righteousness. Now, for those of you who are regular listeners who are listening to the podcast the week that it drops, you know that I didn't get an episode out uh, two weeks ago when I was scheduled to. Uh, The passage just wasn't ready, and there's a lot going on in my life and my family's life right now. I have two daughters and a son, and all of them are married, and uh, all of us, all of our families, uh, are moving into houses that are new to us between March of this year and uh, now, right? So uh, I'm in the process. I'm the last one. Uh, My oldest daughter, we helped her move into her house. Uh, her and her family, and then we uh, drove to Virginia and helped my second daughter move into, and her family move into their house, and then we drove to Atlanta and uh, helped my son on some projects in the new house that they've moved into, and now we're back here at home and moving from a house that we've been renting into the house that we uh, are buying. It's my oldest daughter's house. Um, we moved here uh, to buy their house so they could build a new house. And so a lot of moving pieces. And so I appreciate your patience um, in uh, waiting for this episode uh, to drop. And I think it will be worth the wait. I think it's a really good passage. So I'm looking forward to getting into it. Uh, Again, the the standard translation that I use is the New American Standard. And I, I use it very regularly. And if I use something different, I'll let you know. And then for those of you that are familiar with the, the podcast, know that I do a review at the beginning of each episode that takes us, it's getting longer as the further we get into it. It's now pushing 18, 20 minutes. But if you come in at the 14 minute mark, if you want to fast forward, if the review is tedious to you, if it's not beneficial and you want to fast forward, you can meet us at the 14 minute mark and then be able to uh, pick up and, and move into the new material. And so everybody else, if uh, you're ready to review the key developments of the story, let's do that. And we begin with Adam and Eve, who were created and commissioned to rule as God's representatives. They enjoyed a fully functional relationship with him, including all the blessings that he provided to them as his representatives. But in spite of all these blessings, the serpent's able to stir up discontentment in them. He convinced the woman to pursue her own ideas of good and evil, independent of God. And this was not only an explicit rejection of God's rule, it was also a rejection of her unique role in this creation. Now, this is where the man should have stepped in and led, and through that leadership, subdued the serpent and protected the woman. But he didn't do that. He relinquished leadership to her and followed her as she followed the serpent. And so the man failed in his first opportunity to rule and subdue as God's representative. And although man has never lived up to his created purpose, it still remains God's express purpose for him. And whether or not man will ever fulfill this purpose remains the driving question of this story. Now, in this failure, he brought a curse upon the ground that he was supposed to care for and protect. He'd been formed from it, and now he's doomed to return to it. Instead of the bounty it had produced for him in the garden, it's now going to yield thorns and thistles. And this is his new reality under the curse. Fortunately, Yahweh wasn't content to leave him there, and he's been acting ever since to restore mankind to what he created him to be. 
He wants man to enjoy the blessing that goes with living in alignment with him rather than having to live under this curse. And he started this restoration in the garden. In Genesis 3.15, he promised the woman that one of her seed would ultimately rule and crush the head of the enemy. And in the following verse, he says that the woman will desire this man and he must rule over her. Now, at the time, this statement seemed unclear, but the development of this promise is one of the main thrusts that drives the story forward. And as the story moves forward, man's persistent in his commitment to live independent of God, pursuing life on his own terms, right up through Noah's day. Noah's the rare exception. He was the lone seed of the woman, the one who had chosen to align himself with God in submission to him. This wholesale determination by everyone else to live life on their own terms produced an earth that was filled with violence. And in response to this persistent defiance, Yahweh sends judgment, wiping out mankind in the flood. Only Noah and his seed are preserved in the ark. And upon their exit from the ark, Yahweh makes a covenant with them that's the covenant of the rainbow. And in this covenant, he promises to never again destroy mankind with a flood. This is a major development in that it formalizes Yahweh's determination to respond to man with mercy. He knows that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and if he doesn't act in mercy, man's never going to survive. Now, in connection with the covenant of the rainbow, Yahweh recommissions Noah and his sons, and this commission echoes back to the original commission of Adam with some significant additions. He tells them first off to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, which is almost word for word what he told Adam. But dominion over the animals is stated a bit differently. Yahweh says that he has given all the creatures into the hand of Noah and his sons, meaning that he has given Noah and his sons authority over the animals. So while it's stated differently, that part is essentially the same. But it's in connection to this dominion that one of those additions appears. Not only is man to rule over the creatures, but every living thing is given to him for food, just as Yahweh had previously given him the green plants for food. The only restriction is that he's not to eat the blood of the animal, because that's tied to its life. And to eat the blood would be to eat its life, and this is forbidden. Now, this notion that the blood of the animals is set apart or sacred leads to another new element that is even more significant. That is that any man or animal who spills the lifeblood of a man is to forfeit his own lifeblood at the hands of man, uh, capital punishment. And the stated reason for this is because man was created in the image of God. To kill a man is to kill one who was created to represent God. But the placement of this in the development of the story reveals something else. See, I don't think Yahweh randomly throws in the death penalty for murder here. He establishes this law because of the situation that brought about the flood. We're told that the earth was filled with violence, and I think the implication is that murder was rampant. So now, with a fresh start after the flood, that act carries the death penalty. However, in spite of the fresh start, by the time we get to Babel, somewhere between one and 300 years later, man's again united in his defiance of God's commission and purpose for him. Yahweh responds to this defiance by confusing his languages and dividing them into nations, which he gives over to the dominion of Satan and the demons who followed him in rebellion against Yahweh. The best that the people of these nations, that is, Gentiles, the best that they can hope for is a life lived under the curse. But that doesn't mean Yahweh is giving up on his determination to bring blessing to all these nations. He chooses a man named Abraham and offers him a promise in the form of another covenant. This is the Abrahamic covenant. And we summarized it under three main points. 
First, Abraham's seed, his descendants, his seed will become a new nation distinct from all the nations that were created at Babel. This nation is going to exist in relationship with God. And this is going to be a restoration of the relationship that Yahweh originally created man for. Now, the second major point of the covenant is this nation will possess the land promised to Abraham by Yahweh. And thirdly, they'll hold a special status as the promise holder of blessing. In other words, it's going to be through Abraham's seed that God is going to bring the promised blessing that the Gentiles as a whole have universally rejected throughout the story. Now, this covenant is an extension of the promise made to the woman in the garden, and it provides the framework through which Yahweh will work out his purpose of restoring man to what he created him to be and enable him to enjoy the blessing that Yahweh offers him. The story unfolds. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who's renamed Israel, has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Because of a famine, they go down to Egypt where they're enslaved and grow into a people that's at least 2 million strong. Then after 400 years, Yahweh raises up men named Moses and brings them out of, Mount, uh, of Egypt to Mount Sinai, where Yahweh enters into the Mosaic Covenant with them, establishing the relationship that was promised in his covenant with Abraham. Yahweh is now living among his people, the nation of Israel, in a functional relationship. And it's important to understand how this covenant relates to the Abrahamic covenant. And that is, it's subordinate to it in that it comes after the Abrahamic covenant and does not invalidate or replace it, but rather supplements it. And the way that it supplements it is that it provides the means through which Abraham's seed will enjoy the relationship promised in the Abrahamic covenant. See, under this Mosaic covenant, Yahweh requires the people of Israel to be completely devoted to him with all their hearts, spelling out in great detail what that devotion is going to look like. And if they'll do this, he'll bless them as a nation in the land he has promised them. Specifically, this means that they will be chief among all the nations and will experience abundant fertility in their crops and in their herds and in their own offspring. And in this, they'll manifest to the other nations the glory of living under Yahweh's blessing. And it's in this that we recognize another distinction between the Mosaic and Abrahamic covenants. The Mosaic covenant was conditional. Israel would experience either blessing or cursing depending on whether they obeyed or not. The Abrahamic covenant, by contrast, is unconditional. Having established the covenant with Abraham, Yahweh will make Israel into a nation through whom he brings blessing to all the Gentile nations. Now, before they get into the land, Moses is replaced by Joshua, who actually leads them in to begin to take possession of the land. However, once they get there, they failed repeatedly to live up to their covenant responsibilities in their relationship with Yahweh. Every man's doing what's right in his own eyes. In other words, they're still living under the deception of the serpent that started all the way back in the garden. And in the book of Judges, we're introduced to the solution. They're going to need a king, someone who, through his leadership, will turn their hearts toward Yahweh. Now, as we follow the story, Israel had come to a similar conclusion. At least, they wanted a king. But the king they want is a king like all the other nations have. And so, God gives them that first to show them the folly of their desire. Gives them a man named Saul. But because Saul is independent and self-willed, he's doing what's right in his own eyes, Yahweh doesn't allow him to retain the throne and ultimately kills him and replaces him with David. See, David is the king that they need. He's a man after God's own heart who was able to turn Israel's heart back toward Yahweh so that they're no longer doing what's right in their own eyes. As a result of David's faithfulness in shepherding Israel, Yahweh makes a covenant with him. This is the Davidic covenant. It's an extension of the Abrahamic covenant, providing important details about the seed of the woman who will come and rule. 
We summarize this with four points. First, Yahweh will make David's name great. Secondly, Yahweh will establish Israel in the land so that they dwell securely there. And that is, their nation is never going to be overthrown. And this ties in with the third element of the promise. Yahweh will establish a dynasty in which David's seed will rule over this securely established kingdom. In other words, the house of David will be an eternal dynasty. And then fourthly, David's house is going to build a house for Yahweh's name. Now, David is succeeded on the throne of Israel by Solomon, his immediate seed, who begins to fulfill elements of the Davidic covenant. However, after starting strong, Solomon doesn't finish very well. Rather than loving God, Solomon loved women, and these women turned his heart away from Yahweh to worship the gods of the surrounding nations from which they came. So, in keeping with the terms of the Davidic covenant, Yahweh disciplines the house of David, which results in a divided kingdom. The line of David continues to rule over Judah and Benjamin and make up the southern kingdom, known as the kingdom of Judah. The other ten tribes who rebelled against the house of David formed the northern kingdom, and from this point all the way up into the exile, this is what's known as the kingdom of Israel. Now, as we track the story through the divided kingdom, we find that all the kings of the northern kingdom are evil, leading Israel away from Yahweh, worshiping golden calves as the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Their persistent refusal to worship Yahweh brought upon them the full force of the curses promised in Deuteronomy. Specifically, what this means is that Yahweh brought against them the Assyrian Empire, who crushed them and carried them, most of the people into captivity, scattering them among the other regions of the Assyrian Empire. And this happened in 722 BC. Now, unfortunately, the southern kingdom, Judah, chose a path that wasn't all that different from the northern kingdom. And in spite of reforms by kings like Hezekiah and Josiah, Judah's repeated spiritual adultery brought them under the curses of the covenant as well. They were crushed and led into exile by the Babylonians who reduced Jerusalem to rubble in 586 B.C. But as we closed out the book of Kings, we were reminded that the curses of Deuteronomy weren't final and Yahweh's promise to David still stands. One of his seed will reign over Israel, firmly established in the land promised to Abraham. The kingdom of this promised seed will be an eternal kingdom which will never be conquered. And now we've turned our attention to the prophets who ministered throughout the period of the divided kingdom. We've looked at Jonah, Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Micah, and now we're working our way through Isaiah, who was ministering at roughly the same time as these other prophets. At its broadest level, this book is composed of two major prophetic sections separated by a historical narrative in which some of the revelations of the first section of prophecy are fulfilled. In the first prophetic section, we find that in spite of Yahweh's patient care and provision, the people of Israel and Judah are simply going through the motions in their relationship with Him. Their hearts are turned away, and they're pursuing life independent of Him and all that He offers them. And they've persisted in this independence throughout the divided kingdom, although Yahweh's discipline of them has become increasingly severe. Isaiah warns them that this persistence is short-sighted. The story's unfolding according to Yahweh's long-established plan, and He's in control. The schemes of men and nations ultimately don't matter because they don't take his plans into account, and his plans determine the course of the story and the destiny of all men. And those plans culminate in the day of Yahweh when Christ Christ will return, pour out God's judgment on all the nations of the earth who oppose him, and take his place as the king who will establish his kingdom on earth. This is going to be a kingdom of perfect justice, righteousness, and peace, where the weak and vulnerable will be protected and the wicked will be destroyed. As a result of Christ's reign, harmony will be restored among all living creatures and the Gentile nations will be drawn to Him that He might teach them His ways. 
Given all these coming developments, Yahweh's people should be looking to Yahweh, not the surrounding nations, for their provision and protection. Then in the second unit of the book, which was the historical unit, the perspective shifted. Prophecies made by Isaiah in the first section of the book were fulfilled in very concrete, literal ways. These historical events provided compelling evidence of the reliability of all that was revealed through Isaiah in the first unit of the book, including the many elements which still await future fulfillment. Now we've moved into the second prophetic unit of the book. And this unit opens in Isaiah 40 with a voice calling to prepare a highway for the coming of Yahweh. Isaiah is, in effect, urging the people of Jerusalem to act in anticipation of this coming of Yahweh, at which time his glory will be revealed. As Isaiah continues, he presents the incomparable nature of this God, Yahweh. There's no one else like him, no one else who is worthy of worship or fear, no other God, no man, and no nation. Only Yahweh is able to reveal the things that are to come. And he's able to do this because he's the one who will cause them to occur. Now, those people who live in anticipation of his arrival are promised that they will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. He's chosen them as his servant. And unlike the rest of the peoples of the earth, they don't need to fear. In due time, all who oppose them will be destroyed. But those who wait on him will be renewed and strengthened. Of course, the reason he is making this argument is because his people haven't been waiting on him. They've not embraced their role as his servant. Instead, they've chosen to follow after these other nations, even to the point of worshiping the idols of these other nations, idols which are nothing more than man-made objects. So Yahweh lays out his argument as something of a court case. Yahweh, through Isaiah, presents as the plaintiff in this case. Yahweh's work in creation and his control of the events of history demonstrate his supreme and incomparable nature. The defendants in this case are the idolaters. He compels them to defend their worship, their idols, with evidence. And through the prosecution of the case, these idols are shown to be mere objects crafted by man from firewood. And the point of the case is to establish who is worthy of worship. In worshiping these idols, Yahweh's people are giving the worship and devotion due to the supreme and incomparable God, Yahweh, to these idols. And this Yahweh is not going to allow to stand. So here's what he's going to do. In the near term, the people of Israel are going to be humiliated for their idolatry, which has rendered them both blind and deaf to all that is true and real. But in the long term, Yahweh is going to do something new. He's not going to abandon His people. He's going to redeem them and restore their sight and their hearing in order that they may return to Him and come to believe and know Him. He's going to do this through another servant that He raises up. We learn about this servant through a series of four servant songs spread across chapters 42 through 53 of Isaiah. As we move through these songs, we came to recognize this servant as the seed of David, the Messiah. He will establish justice as a king, not only in Israel, but in all the earth, and he will be a light to the nations. Through him, Yahweh will manifest his glory to the nations and receive the worship due exclusively to him. As he carries out his mission, he's going to face such intense opposition that it's going to look like he failed. He'll be beaten, abused, and humiliated. And as men observe his humiliation, they're going to assume that his suffering is deserved, that he's under Yahweh's judgment for his sin, so he's going to be abhorred and despised. As it turns out, he is under God's judgment, suffering for sin, but it's not for his sin. He's suffering for the sins of Israel and indeed for the sins of the whole world. He willingly presents himself as a guilt offering to atone and make restitution for sin, again for the sin of Israel and the whole world. 
And throughout this suffering, he sets his face like flint toward fulfilling the mission given him. Because of his humble obedience, he'll indeed be exalted above the kings and princes of the earth. Because of all the suffering he willingly endures, he will be exalted as the king who will establish justice and righteousness on the earth. This is followed by a discussion of the restoration that this servant will bring about through his suffering. And it begins with the depiction of Israel as the wife who is both barren and rejected by her husband. In this future restoration, her barrenness will be replaced by an unprecedented abundance of offspring through faith. And her shame of rejection will be replaced by his compassionate collection of her to himself by Yahweh. In practical terms, this means that Yahweh will replace the upheaval of Judah's current situation with stability, security, abundance, and beauty as her descendants walk in Yahweh's wisdom. Now, the promise of this restoration is a well-established theme in Isaiah. But in Isaiah 55, which we covered in the last episode, we learn that this restoration will be accomplished through a new covenant that Yahweh will make with his people. And he'll establish this covenant with them when they turn from their independence and self-will, that is, their own futile and fruitless thoughts and ways. And then they listen to him so that they might learn his thoughts and ways, which are incomparably superior to theirs. In contrast to the futility of their ways, his ways will bring about this restoration, which will not only restore the nation of Israel to Yahweh and his blessings, but will also deliver all creation from the curse. And so that brings us up to today's episode, where I think we enter a new message within the book of Isaiah, and it's indicated by the opening words of Isaiah 56.1. Thus says Yahweh, preserve justice and do righteousness. For my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. So as I said, thus says Yahweh, I think, marks the beginning of a new message to Isaiah from Yahweh. It marks a new speaking. This message begins with an exhortation to preserve justice and do righteousness. I see this as a general exhortation that encompasses all the responsibilities of the people of Judah before Yahweh. Of course, these responsibilities are well established and so they don't need to be delineated here. The motivation for pursuing this justice and righteousness is the nearness of the coming of Yahweh's salvation and of the revelation of His righteousness. Now, there are perhaps a number of different ways that we could understand these, but these themes are going to be unpacked as we move through these four chapters. I want you to notice that the coming of this salvation is not dependent on the conduct of Yahweh's people. They're not told to preserve justice and do righteousness so that His salvation may come and His righteousness be revealed. They are told to preserve justice and do righteousness because it is coming. The certainty of this coming is to motivate them to live in this way. And the second verse explains why. How blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. So blessing is promised to those who live in this way, who are faithful to the responsibilities given them by Yahweh. Now, we need to be clear here. This blessing is not the salvation itself. As we discovered in the last five episodes, the servant is going to pay the price through his own suffering that will bring about this salvation that is coming to Yahweh's people. But that doesn't mean that his people should passively indulge themselves in this salvation. It should motivate them to faithfulness. And as we move on, we find that the scope of this blessing is unexpected. Verse 3, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to Yahweh say, Yahweh will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. And so as we read this, we recognize that Yahweh includes two specific groups in the promised blessing, foreigners 
and eunuchs. And to appreciate the significance of this, we need to go back to Deuteronomy yet again. Let's look at what we find with about foreigners there first. In Deuteronomy 14, 21, says, You shall not eat anything which dies of itself. You may give it to the alien who is in your town so that he may eat it, or you may sell it to the foreigner, for you are a holy people to Yahweh your God. Now note the implication of that last phrase. The people of Israel were holy to Yahweh their God. That is, they were set apart from all other people with an elevated status. And so this gave them privileges not enjoyed by foreigners. Deuteronomy 15.1 At the end of every seven years you shall grant a remission of debts. This is the manner of remission. Every creditor shall release what he has loaned to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor and his brother, because Yahweh's remission has been proclaimed. From a foreigner you may exact it, but your hand shall release whatever of yours is with your brother. Then Deuteronomy 17.14 When you enter the land which Yahweh your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I'll set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, You shall surely set a king over you, whom Yahweh your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. And then Deuteronomy 23, 19 and 20. You shall not charge interest to your countrymen, interest on money, food, or anything that may be loaned at interest. You may charge interest to a foreigner, but to your countrymen you shall not charge interest so that Yahweh your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land which you were about to enter to possess. And so the point here is that although foreigners could join the nation of Israel and participate in the worship of Yahweh, there were limits to the status and privileges that they could enjoy within Israel. Likewise, eunuchs were also treated as, as a distinct group under the law. Deuteronomy 23.1, no one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of Yahweh. As I understand it, they could not participate in any of the regular assemblies of the nation of Israel. This would have included the three annual feasts that were required of all Israelite men. And so together, the foreigners and the eunuchs represented people who had a diminished standing under the law. And yet, in spite of this diminished standing, They should not fear diminished blessing. Verse 4 of Isaiah 56. For thus says Yahweh to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Of course, eunuchs couldn't produce descendants who would carry on their name. But Yahweh promises to give these eunuchs who are faithful to Him an even even more meaningful significance. And likewise, the faithful foreigners are promised full access to Yahweh's house under this blessing. Listen as he continues in verse 6. Also the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh, to minister to Him, and to love the name of Yahweh, to be His servants, everyone who keeps from profaning my Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord Yahweh who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, Yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. Now note that in that last verse, Yahweh's even going to gather such faithful foreigners from among the nations in the same way he's going to regather Israel at the proper time. And so to summarize, 
Yahweh promises that, in association with the coming of the salvation that the suffering servant will bring, all who are faithful to him will enjoy extensive blessing. Now he turns his attention to the current situation in Judah. To understand these next four verses, we have to recognize he's adopting a metaphor involving sheep. All you beasts of the field, all you beasts in the forest, come to eat. Now, these beasts are wild beasts, and they represent the surrounding nations. Yahweh's inviting them to come and feed on the people of Israel. Here's why. Verse 10, His watchmen are blind, all of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs, unable to bark, dreamers lying down who love to slumber. And the dogs are greedy, they are not satisfied, and they are shepherds who have no understanding. They've all turned to their own way, each one to his unjust gain, to the last one. Come, they say, let us get wine and let us drink heavily of strong drink. Tomorrow will be like today, only more so. Of course, the watchmen and the shepherds represent the leaders of Israel, the prophets, the priests, the judges, and the kings, who are supposed to be watching out for the people. And instead, they're using their position to indulge their own desires and to accumulate wealth. And note that they are blind, asleep, and without understanding. Here's some of what they're missing. Isaiah 57.1 The righteous man perishes, and no one takes it to heart. And devout men are taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from evil. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds, each one who walked in his upright way. See, these leaders, they don't understand that given the wickedness in Israel, death delivers the righteous man from the presence of evil and brings them peace. This is not necessarily the way it should be, but it reflects the reality of life in Israel in Isaiah's day. And now he turns his attention and speaks directly to the wicked of Israel, providing yet another picture of their unfaithfulness as he describes their idolatrous practices. But come here, you sons of a sorceress, offspring of an adulterer and a prostitute. Against whom do you jest? Against whom do you open wide your mouth and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of rebellion, offspring of deceit, who inflame yourselves among the oaks under every luxuriant tree? This is probably a reference to pagan ritual prostitution. And who slaughter the children in the ravines under the clefts of the crags. Of course, this is child sacrifice. Among the smooth stones of the ravine is your portion. They are your lot. Even to them you have poured out a drink offering. You have made a grain offering. Shall I relent concerning these things? Upon a high and lofty mountain you have made your bed, which is a depiction of their idolatry as spiritual adultery. You also went up there to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your sign. This would have been an idolatrous symbol that was maybe hidden behind a door. Indeed, far removed from me, you have uncovered yourself and have gone up and made your bed wide. This is more allusions to their idolatry as spiritual adultery. Continuing, he says, And you have made an agreement for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on their manhood, which is, of course, a graphic depiction of their idolatrous lust. You have journeyed to the king with oil and increased your perfumes. You have sent your envoys a great distance and made them go down to Sheol. Now, you may recall their attempts to protect themselves through treaties with other kings was also depicted as adultery. In their idolatry, the issue was their worship and devotion. They were giving the worship and devotion, which was rightfully Yahweh's, to idols. And with these treaties, the issue was their trust and dependence. They should have been trusting Yahweh as their husband to protect them and provide for them. Instead, they were directing that trust and dependence toward these foreign kings. And these were not necessarily two separate issues. 
See, an attempt to influence the pagan king to protect them, they would adopt his idols as their gods as well. You might remember that we saw this back in 2 Kings 16, when Ahaz went to Damascus to secure a treaty with Tiglath-Pileser. He even had a replica of the altar in Damascus built back in Jerusalem so that he could replicate the worship there. And this is the kind of spiritual adultery that's here depicted in the verses we just read, verse 9. He continues in verse 10, You were tired out by the length of your road. Yet you didn't say it is hopeless. You found renewed strength, therefore you did not faint. Now, as you read this, it kind of sounds like a good thing, but when you look at it in the context, uh, they were persistent in their idolatry. It's not a good thing. Isaiah 57, 11, as we continue, Of whom were you worried and fearful when you lied and did not remember me nor give me a thought? See, their behavior didn't reflect a fear of Yahweh. They ignored him, right? He continues and says, Was I not silent even for a long time? So you do not fear me. Now, as we look at the context, the larger context of the Old Testament, we find that this silence wasn't from passivity. It wasn't that Yahweh was just too lazy. It was an expression of his mercy, but they missed that. And Psalm 50 gives us a more detailed glimpse at Yahweh's silence. This is in 50 verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, what right do you have to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you're pleased with him. You associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. And note this last verse from Psalm 50. There will come a point when Yahweh will no longer keep silent. But when he speaks, it will be to rebuke his people point by point for their sin. And he says the same thing back here in Isaiah 57 in the very next verse. I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. And so when he starts declaring the righteousness and deeds, he's going to show that they're, in fact, not righteousness and deeds, and that's why they won't profit. And so they've made their choice. They've trusted in these other idols, and now they have to live with the consequences of that choice. Verse, uh, second half of verse 13. But the wind will carry all of them up, and a breath will take them away. This is talking about the idols. And what this means is that these idols that they trusted in have no substance. There's nothing to them. By contrast, Yahweh says as he continues, but he who takes refuge in me will inherit the land and will possess my holy mountain. And so with his last statement, the focus returns to the blessing that those who are faithful to Yahweh will enjoy. 57.14, and it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place, also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of those whom I have made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and struck him. I hid my face and was angry. And he went on turning away in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners, creating the praise of the lips, peace, peace to him who is far 
and to him who is near, says Yahweh, and I will heal him. So as we reflect on this, remember that Yahweh has spoken several times of healing his people, and the most recent was in connection with the work of the suffering servant back in Isaiah 53, 5, where he says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And so the suffering servant will accomplish what the people of Israel on their own cannot. He'll suffer for their healing, but they will need to turn their hearts back to Yahweh and stop relying on their own efforts. Continuing in verse 20, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And so, of course, this is a contrast. The lowly and contrite will be healed, but there's no peace for the wicked. They're consumed by chaos. As he moves into chapter 58, he begins the declaration of their righteousness and their deeds that he spoke of back up in verse 12 of this chapter. He says, Cry aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. Now, by this point, the transgressions and sins of Yahweh's people are well established in the book of Isaiah. And the point of this statement is to highlight the contradiction between their sinful conduct and their supposed devotion to Yahweh that's going to be described in the following verse. Now, I'm going to go back and reread verse 1 again to give the contrast its full impact. So he says again, Cry loudly, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me day by day and delight to know my ways as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God. They ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. See, in spite of all their adultery, the people of Israel or Judah come to Yahweh as if they've been faithful in righteousness and they claim to enjoy their relationship with Yahweh. Their perspective of the relationship is so distorted that they believe they have a legitimate complaint against Yahweh, and it's expressed in the first part of the next verse, verse 3. Why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? In other words, we've been praying and fasting. How come you haven't answered us? And as the passage continues, Yahweh replies, Behold, on the day of your fast you find your desire and drive hard all your workers. See, a fast should be a time of self-denial. To find that which you desire in the same day as your fast is not really fasting at all. He continues in verse 4. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. See, it seems that the Israelites were trying to manipulate Yahweh into taking their side in their conflicts with one another. And this last verse doesn't quite fit with the way I think the flow should go, and I think it's intended to go. I think the last sentence of this verse makes better sense if we read it as a command rather than a declarative sentence. Do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high, right? So back up verse 4, if we if we put all that together. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. And so this is not another statement, but a, a, a uh, uh, dec- uh, command. Do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. The point of fasting is not to get Yahweh to answer your prayer. It's not. And so that's what they were doing. And listen as he describes the kind of fast that he desires. Is it a fast like this which I choose? 
A day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed? And for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? And, and see, these are describing ostentatious acts that appear to be uh, spiritual, but are done for show. Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to Yahweh? Is this not the fast which I choose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into the house, when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? See, the point of fasting is not somehow to leverage Yahweh into doing your will. It's a discipline in which you deny yourself and your own desires in order to humble yourself before him so that you can know and do his will. That's the fast that Yahweh desires. And I want to mention one other thing here, just as we go through this, because passages like this get taken out and I, I think misunderstood. He's talking about do not hide yourself from your own flesh, right? All of these things that he's talking about here are in the context of the covenant people, the nation of Israel. And so he's not telling uh, Israel to treat the Amalekites or the Moabites like this. This is going on within the, this is commanded within uh, the people of the nation of, of Israel and Judah, right? And so when his people fast in this way, this is what they can expect. Listen as he, as he continues, then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of Yahweh will be your rear guard. Then you will call and Yahweh will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, and if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday. And Yahweh will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones and you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise up the age-old foundations and you will be called the repair of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of Yahweh honorable, and honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word. Then you will take delight in Yahweh, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Right. So I think these passages are pretty self-explanatory, so I'm not pausing to make a lot of comment. When they respond in this way, they will experience the restoration that Yahweh has promised. And he continues this explanation as he moves into chapter 59. Behold, Yahweh's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ear so dull that it cannot hear. In other words, the problem is not that Yahweh is somehow incapable of answering their prayers. The not disconnect is not on his end. Here's where it is, verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one sues righteously, and no one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. 
They hatch adder's eggs and weave spider's webs. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed a snake breaks forth. Their webs will not become clothing, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and an act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed innocent blood. The thought, their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace, and there is no justice in their tracks. They've made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. And so, in other words, in spite of their religious practices, all these things they're, they're doing to look like they're devoted to God, they're separated from Yahweh. There is people, but He doesn't answer them because of the sin with which they're consumed. And this separation has produced the world in which they live. And he describes this as he continues in verse 9. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness, for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying Yahweh, and turning away from our God, seeking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the street, and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking, and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Now Yahweh saw, and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. Notice that in Isaiah's description, there's a particular emphasis on the absence of justice, righteousness, and truth. These words are repeated multiple times. Let's start with righteousness and think about it for just a second. Righteousness is that which aligns with what Yahweh says is right, right? That's a good, very simple understanding. Yeah, righteousness is that which aligns with what Yahweh says is right. Justice, then, would involve judgment based on that standard. That which conforms to what Yahweh says is right is approved. That which does not conform to righteousness is punished. And of course, truth is related to both of these. Only the righteousness and justice established by Yahweh is true. And those who pursue unrighteousness and corrupt justice rely on lies and deception, right? So you have the emphasis of these three. But notice that it's the lack of justice that's most prominently emphasized. The passage opens by saying, justice is far from us. And then justice is mentioned two more times in the course of the passage. In verse 11, we hope for justice, but there is none. Verse 14, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. And finally, the passage closes with a statement, now Yahweh saw, and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. Pay special attention to this closing statement. The rest of the passage focuses on the conditions in Judah, but this last statement shifts to Yahweh's perspective, and he's not happy. But there's more. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. See, not only are his people consumed by their sins so that justice, righteousness, and truth are completely absent, but there's no one who can intercede for them, no one who can do anything about it, the situation looks hopeless, but listen as he continues. 
This is in the middle of verse 16. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. See, there was no one else to intercede with Yahweh on behalf of sinful man, so Yahweh himself steps in. Now, we need to pay close attention as the description of Yahweh's response continues in the following verses, because it goes a very different direction than I would have expected. Verse 17, He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. Now, as we read this, there's a temptation to kind of tie it to Ephesians 6 and uh, analyze the, the different pieces of armor. But don't get so focused on the details of the armor that we miss the picture here. Yahweh begins his response by armoring up as a warrior. See, I would have expected the response to be oriented towards sacrifice, but instead, Yahweh prepares to go to war. And then in the next verse, he does. Verse 18, according to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will make recompense. See, the emphasis is on his wrath and his vengeance and how he will repay all of his enemies, even to the far off lands, to the ends of the earth. And of course, this is another description of the day of Yahweh, when Yahweh's anointed, the Messiah, is going to crush the nations with a rod of iron and establish justice in all the earth, right? The theme that we've been talking about. Verse 19, so they will fear the name of Yahweh from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of Yahweh drives. As I read this, it, it occurs to me that for almost all the story, for the bulk of the story, Men are under the impression that they can respond to Yahweh with indifference, and it doesn't matter. But at the point that's being described here, at this point, the indifference that the Gentile world has shown toward Yahweh is going to be gone. It's going to be replaced by unmitigated fear. His glory is going to be overwhelming. And this point is particularly emphasized in the last half of the verse, where Isaiah says he will come like a rushing stream. I think the picture here is of a flash flood roaring down a dry riverbed, right? It's going to be overwhelming. And so this fear and his glory is going to overwhelm all of these who have responded indifferent to him. But his coming is not just about his wrath. There's another side to it, and it's described in verse 20. A redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares Yahweh. Now, uh, we need to think about this term redeemer. I'm not sure the concept of redeemer is immediately clear to us today. In my 21st century American experience, I redeem coupons, reward points, and gift cards. But this really doesn't help my understanding of what's being said here. And occasionally we'll speak of someone redeeming themselves, meaning that they'll do something to make up for an earlier failure. Uh, but again, that doesn't help me much here. In the Old Testament usage, there's a connection to our modern usage, but it has a significantly di different dimension to it. Listen to the following excerpt from the entry in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia for the, the, the article on Redeemer Redemption. The idea of redemption in the Old Testament takes its start from the thought of property. Money is paid according to law to buy something back which must be delivered or rescued. From this start, the word redemption throughout the Old Testament is used in the general sense of deliverance. God is the redeemer of Israel in the sense that he's the deliverer of Israel. The idea of deliverance includes deliverance from all forms of evil lot, from nation, uh, national misfortune or from plague or from calamity of any sort. 
Of course, the general thought of the relation of Israel to God was that God had both a claim upon Israel and an obligation toward Israel. Israel belonged to him, and it was by his own right that he could move into the life of Israel so as to redeem Israel. On the other hand, obligation was upon him to redeem Israel. And so, from an Old Testament perspective, Redeemer uh, involves the idea of deliverance and uh, involves some form of buying back. And of course, Boaz is the embodiment of this concept in his deliverance of Ruth, buying back the property of her husband's family, which included not only the land they had owned, but Ruth as well, making her his wife. So when Isaiah says a Redeemer will come to Zion, he's speaking of one who will come to Zion to deliver and rescue from calamity, buying back the objects of his redemption. And these objects are identified in the second half of the verse. Let me read it again. A Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares Yahweh. The wording of this is significant. He doesn't come to redeem those who do good. He comes to redeem those who turn from their transgression in Jacob. See, it's not about performance. He comes to those who had not been aligned with him, but have now turned from their transgression and turned back to him. They've been pursuing life independent of Yahweh, but now they've repented and are properly oriented to him. So it's not about performance. It's about proper orientation. It's about submission to him. And as he continues, he makes a promise to those who have turned from their transgression. Verse 21, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says Yahweh. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says Yahweh, from now and forever. And of course, offspring in all this is seed. It's a continuation of of the seed, the seed of the of the woman, ultimately, as we take it all the way back. And what's being given here is an oblique reference to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit under the New Covenant. The full significance of this is not going to be apparent until we get to the New Testament, Just so we just want to recognize that that's implicit in what he's saying here. And this brings us to the end of the passage that we want to consider today. As we move into the making sense of life portion of this episode, Remember that this part of the podcast is not so much about application, at least not in the sense I normally think about sermon application. As I've said before, it's about reorienting our thinking in light of the developments we encounter as the story unfolds. And what strikes me in this episode is how the coming of the Redeemer, which we know of as the second coming of Christ, how this return, how his return, is depicted. And in this passage, the thing which prompts Yahweh to act is not His grace and mercy, not the care for His people, not in this passage. The thing that motivates a response from Him is the conditions in which His people are living. Justice and righteousness are nowhere to be found among them. And in spite of His law and His prophets, they stumble around in darkness. Their sins and their transgressions are abundant, and they've denied Yahweh. They've ignored His will and to do what they want to do. They've turned away from Him to pursue life on their own terms. They're independent and self-willed. And he sees all of this and he's angry. And this is perhaps what I think we miss. It's the absence of righteousness and justice that angers him and prompts him to act. And so he gears up and goes to war, pouring out his wrath on everyone who refuses to align with what he says is right. Now, certainly he's going to bring redemption in the midst of all this. And this redemption is not reserved for those who somehow attempt to get it right or make up for their transgressions. 
No, all that he requires of those whom he will redeem is that they turn from their transgression and reorient to him. And not only will he redeem them, he'll give them his spirit forever. His redemption, his grace and mercy, his care for his people, they're all present. But in this passage, the focus is on the importance of righteousness and justice to Yahweh. And it goes all the way back to the first verse we read four chapters earlier, Isaiah 56, 1. Thus says Yahweh, preserve justice and do righteousness. Why? For my salvation is about to come through the Redeemer and my righteousness to be revealed. See, he's urging the people of Isaiah's day to live in anticipation of the day that he gears up and pours out his wrath. And as New Testament believers, we have similar exhortations. They're more fully developed, but they urge us to live in like manner. Colossians 3.1 Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You're looking to where Christ is. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Right? So you're looking to where He is. Why? Verse 4. Because when Christ, who is our life, is revealed then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That's talking about his second coming. And more, uh, even stronger statements in 1 Peter uh, 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance. There's that former turning away. But like the Holy One who called you, Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So here's the point that I think is is stirring in me as I read this, and think I think we need to reorient to. To properly live in anticipation of Christ's return, we have to set aside this notion that Yahweh is a kindly old grandfather who simply overlooks our failures. We must recognize just how offensive unrighteousness is to Him, and walk in unqualified submission so that we can become his sons and daughters, taking on his character and adopting the holiness that characterizes him. And that's how we live in anticipation of Christ's return. The same thing that Isaiah, or Yahweh through Isaiah, is urging the people of Israel or Judah to do in Isaiah's 56 through 59. I hope this is helping you understand the story, make sense of your own life and how to live it. Grateful always for the opportunity to share with share this with you. If you've got any comments or questions, the dedicated email is garth at truequest.us. Um, I, I appreciate those of you who have rated the podcast. And if you haven't, um, I would appreciate a, a good rating. I've been listening to some other podcasts while I was on the road. And uh, one of the hosts said, hey, give us a five-star rating. And you go, well, that's not a bad thing to ask for. So I hope you're finding it useful. If you do and you haven't rated this, give us a five-star rating. It makes it more visible uh, for others who might find it and, and find uh, help in, in what we're putting out here. Last thing to mention is this podcast is a ministry of TrueQuest Outfitter Ministries. And if you find value in what we're doing here and would like to support this, you can do so at TrueQuest.us. Until next episode, I pray that God's blessings are upon you. Mm-hmm.